0: As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills.
1: The more muscle memory
0: that you have,
2: the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverseimpact.
0: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix
2: things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer.
0: Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.
1: Hey, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andrea Skontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. It's the end of 2019, so for this episode, we are doing a look back at the, the some of the stories that we covered over this year, and a couple of our favorite science stories, and I'm joined in studio by our correspondent, Adam Bristol. Welcome, Adam.
2: Indra, thanks so much for having me.
1: It's our, my pleasure. So, tell me, what was your favorite Inquiring Minds episode of the year?
2: Oh, uh, <laughs> too many. I mean, besides the ones that I did.
1: Yeah, those were because great.
2: Because I... Truly enjoyed speaking with Matt Richtel, uh, who is a very talented uh, author of both nonfiction and fiction. We spoke about his um, more recent uh, satirical look at Silicon Valley, which was really funny, in part because he and I both live in this area. And so a lot of the, um, you know, foibles of everyday life that he picked up on and articulated in the book – you know, they really hit home with me and I think, you know, the, it was a very well-written account of Silicon Valley and Bay Area life in general here in kind of 2019. Um And, you know, of your podcasts, I mean, you just had this star-studded list of guests. You know, remember on most weeks, I'm just another one of your many listeners. And so when I show up, show up in my feed, some of my favorite – um um you know, public intellectuals and authors and journalists, people like Joe Piznanski and Neil Stevenson and former football player turned mathematician John Urschel. And of course, Bill Nye, the science guy. I mean, it was truly just a star-studded parade of guests on this podcast. So it was just really, really great. If I were to choose any of those, um, I thought John Urschel was a a really illuminating discussion. You know, I mean, he is obviously – Done things post career from professional football players that not a lot of other football players I would think would do would that is go back to school and become not just any academic but a mathematician at mit uh for that matter, so that's a pretty extraordinary story but um you know he would you also spoke with him about head trauma chronic traumatic encephalopathy issues related to playing football for as long as he did, and the potential cognitive i guess impact of doing so.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's that's a topic I'm really passionate about. Um, I actually, if, if you haven't seen it, this is to our listeners, I highly recommend the movie Concussion with Will Smith. Right. Uh, I feel like it was, you know, sort of a, nobody really paid attention to it when it came out. And it's actually a really accurate portrayal of the work of Bennett Omalu, who has been just central in terms of bringing this issue to light. Um, and so, yeah, so I, you know, just speaking to a person who played in the NFL and knowing, you know some of these data it was I couldn't help myself, but I had to ask him. Although you know I I don't know how
2: um, how pleased he was uh, to talk about that. A couple I do of- I mean, he was. I thought he was quite um, diplomatic about it. I think yeah. you know he was clearly aware of the data and was queer, uh, aware of the research that's been going on. He wasn't yet ready to give up on football and and fully embrace. The, the the dangers that have been portrayed uh, in the media, but I felt it was a really thoughtful and earnest, sincere discussion. So I, I really like that one.
1: Oh, good, thanks.
2: Now, Joe Piszczek, you know, is one of my favorite authors in general. You yeah, know, I feel just, like <laughs> you know, in my personal life. I love his sports journalism he also writes about his life he's written several fantastic biographies and you have become a bit of a kind of a professional you know social media friend of Joe so I'm tremendously <laughs> jealous of that tell me about yeah we of...
1: do direct message on Twitter yeah <laughs> yeah I mean I you know you turn you turn me on to his writings and I think he's just you know just has a really wonderful voice and when I found out that he was writing a book about Houdini I knew knew that it was going to be incredibly well researched. And I knew that his own personality was going to come through to it. So um, I was excited to read the book, and then even more excited to actually get to talk to him about it. Uh, And sort of his take on it, which was really about how do you kind of um, sell wonder? And that's really what Houdini did. It was more than just let's fool people, uh, or let's even just use kind of you know, magic as a way of exploring our own perception and our own limitations as humans. It was really sort of this bigger question of, um, you know, trying to go after things that we don't necessarily – understand. And that really is at the core of what science is all about. So I felt that this biography of Harry Houdini, told from the perspective of Joe Posnansky, a science writer, was a really great fit for Inquiring Minds, where we talk about science and its place in society, because here you have an example of a person who really is looking at sort of the the, the fundamental curiosity about the world, um, and and trying to kind of continue to engender wonder and and sort of let wonder permeate, And, and that sort of stimulates our curiosity, makes us seek out answers to questions.
2: And as I learned from Joe's book, yes, Houdini was about fooling you, right? So he was an illusionist. He was an escape artist. And frankly, when you learn from reading his book, and this is ancient history now, so I'm not giving anything away, but when you learn how he did some of his illusions and how some of his escapes you're mightily disappointed. I mean, it can be as simple as a confederate or someone who's working with him simply handing him a key, you know, when no one else is looking and he unlocks things. So that's pretty disappointing. And yet there's another aspect of his later life in particular, which was debunking a lot of the mysticism and uh, attempts to contact and bring back the dead. And, you know, he became a... Um, uh, a a truth seeker or at least he would you know he would he would debunk in the way that uh, a um James Randy you know would be today mm-hmm. as someone mm-hmm. who it takes great delight in exposing the sh- the frauds uh out there and so i think again that that was a really that was a really great aspect of of the book what was some of your favorite uh interviews of 2019
1: so, I mean, looking back it it uh it definitely was a busy year, uh especially after Kishore stepped up his work with the Chan Zuckerberg initiative and had to leave the podcast uh We were very sad to see him go uh and so you know we wish him uh all the best and and actually was uh on a webinar recently. Uh, look, talking to uh, media impact, uh, funders, and there he was, uh, as one of the funders. And so it was kind of fun to, you know, say hello to him, uh, and, and sort of see him in this new role that he's now really, you know, grown into and, and is, you know, doing incredibly well and incredibly important work. So we're proud to have him there. We're sad to lose him on the podcast, but totally understand. But I, you know, I, uh, I recently did a uh, an interview with Dr. Drew on the Dr. Drew podcast, mm. and he asked me one of the same questions. And you know, I have to say that probably it was the two Davids. So I did interviews with two Davids back to back. Where I didn't I didn't record them that way, but we programmed them that way because I actually thought they were kind of a nice fit, and not just because they share the first. Name. Um, but David Epstein, who wrote a book called Range about why generalists are often overlooked, but often also triumph. Uh, so that's a, he wrote a book that i loved uh, previously interviewed him on called the sports gene and so we kind of bonded over this notion that sometimes kids specialize too early at their detriment that there's this finding that in fact if you um if if you generalize if you can sort of develop some fundamental skills then you can make real strides in a field that maybe you weren't a specialist in because you see it from a different perspective. So it kind of goes against the Malcolm Gladwell, Anders Erickson, outliers, you know, deliberate practice uh, uh, vision, although as we talked about it, it's not entirely out of line with that vision. It just suggests that there is room for generalists. And of course, as someone who has degrees in both opera and science, <laughs> that's something that appeals to me personally. And then following that up with an interview with David Robson, on how sometimes our own intelligence can trap us into making really stupid mistakes. I thought it was just an interesting look at at some of the same issues, right? So, you know, on the one hand, having a general view can make you see things that other people who are too, you know, have their blinders on can't see. And if you're really intelligent, those blinders can really be um, present in many different aspects of your life. And so that's another way in which kind of the same kind of theme permeates uh, the discussion. So I really enjoyed both of those conversations.
2: Yeah, it seems like with the Robeson interview, I found that illuminating too, because there's a long history in experimental psychology, looking at the the impact of expertise. And obviously, expertise is incredibly valuable. And unfortunately, in 2019 political environment, it seems like expertise is being devalued, if you look at today's New York Times. Um, But there is a functional fixedness and that's a true psychological concept of functional fixedness that is too much exposure where you know that you come to see objects or see concepts and not being able to see the outside of those and not being able to see outside the box and i thought robeson's um discussion of that you know really expanded my view of 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 that phenomenon
1: yeah so um
2: like you Oh your, your right, book, that's right. Yeah, so I wrote you a book. Were
1: interviewed. <laughs> I wrote a book this year. Yeah. It came out that gosh, that seems so long ago. That no. was back in April. Um I wrote a book called How Music Can Make You Better and uh Kishore it was really interviewed fun. You. Yeah, it was yeah. Really fun to be interviewed by Kishore. I normally don't I just normally would have gotten, you know, the op, you know, the opportunity to have a conversation with him, but never really to be on the other side of of the interview, which was which was fun. So what about science stories? So we also want to talk a little bit about kind of the major science news of the year. Um, I think everyone, at least all the lists that I've read, have put the Event Horizon Telescope's photograph of a black hole at the very top. Uh, That is very exciting. And, uh, And, you know, somewhere along those lines, though, there is mention of the climate. And, of course, that's a topic that we cover here at Inquiring Minds. We try to cover it extensively, although in this past year, maybe it got uh, a little less attention than it deserved, given how great the problem is. Um, but someone who did get a lot of attention was uh, Greta Thunberg, uh, the Swedish teenager who has become really a worldwide known and well known activist. Uh, she was the Time Magazine Person of the Year. She was also on the cover of Time back in May um and uh, she is she has provoked the ire of of Donald Trump and Macron and you know all kinds of world leaders as she has her voice has been heard by so many people um she's a really interesting uh, uh, activist because i don't know that communicating uh, say so something that comes very easily to her. Although she calls her Asperger's diagnosis a superpower, and and I see where she's coming from with that because she is very blunt and direct, and that of course uh, might be related to the diagnosis. Um, but regardless where it comes from, I think that that really is her strength.
2: I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, she is a truly extraordinary person at her age to be organizing and demonstrating and articulating a vision is quite extraordinary. I certainly didn't have the wherewithal uh, to do that. And I see it as kind of two points. One is that she's certainly channeling a rage or projecting a rage that seems to be shared by many hundreds of thousands, if not millions of young people, which I think is terrific. So she's clearly articulating that rage there's a there's a real fervor in her oratory style there's also that earnest simplicity that you described the message of her is often not overly it's not dry it's direct Mm -hmm. it's um not convoluted it's there's quite linear Mm -hmm. and if you don't if you if you make such simple uh direct pleas for change and they're not adhered to well, you know who looks bad at that you know we're not we're not trying to bury this and tiptoe through the tulips and make this convoluted argument. We're acting you know she and her followers and I would consider myself one of them uh, are acting are are looking for some real direct policy changes and um and and so it's really, she's quite extraordinary, extraordinary person.
1: So one impact of her work, and I think just people being more mindful of the climate in general has been that a lot of really prominent scientists and other kinds of um, public intellectuals have stopped flying or have made a, an effort to stop flying so much because of yeah. course, you know, flying commercial or any airplane uh, is, has a huge impact on the environment. Did you know that her mother is an opera singer?
2: No, I didn't know that.
1: And she gave up her career... Uh, because her she can she yeah. uh, stopped flying and yeah. basically at her daughter's insistence, yeah. uh, so that's pretty powerful. You know, a sixteen-year-old girl who can basically convince her mother, who had a successful opera career, to drop that in favor of you know the climate. I think uh, is really impressive, and and kudos to her family for making that decision. Uh, and same thing that we've you know there are, there are several researchers that I know who who too have have made uh, a very mindful choice not to travel, even though for scientists a lot of of our career depends on disseminating, you know, the the work that we do and interacting with people at conferences.
2: It should be able, it should be possible to do that remotely. Mm -hmm. You know, we have the tools, the technology is there to be able to collaborate and interact meaningfully. And not physically be present.
1: I mean, the only problem is is that I do think that that kind of a choice would be more difficult for researchers who are at earlier stages of their careers, yeah. because you know yeah. there, it is true that at those conferences you do meet people, and that makes an, an impact. hobnobbing. So not everyone can make that choice, I think, and still uh, reach the kind of career success that they hope for. But I think more and more, this trend towards, especially coming down from sort of leadership areas uh, of of sort of, you know, making these decisions, I think, is is really positive. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing
2: I'd be really curious to know what the calculation would be to actually, if more and more people uh, decided to not fly, mm-hmm. how quickly that would have an impact on air travel. Because on the one yeah. hand, you might say, well, geez, you know, one empty seat on a flight from San Francisco to New York, that flight's going to go anyways. So, yeah, I didn't contribute to the the carbon footprint, but that carbon footprint was still made. but. I think we all appreciate that the air travel business, my sense is that they're very, they have very slim margins and they are very sensitive to the bottom line. And so it's possible it doesn't take that much for an airline to say, you know what, we're rebooking everybody on one fewer flight because mm-hmm. we're only at half capacity. Like I wonder what that crossover point is where a slight drop in demand literally does change the supply. Yeah, I mean, that I I could see that could have a real impact.
1: It's interesting that you mentioned that because I feel like I had to, unfortunately, had to do a lot of travel over the last month. And very rarely was there an empty seat on the entire plane. And I do feel that, you know, airlines now really are making sure that their flights are sold out uh, before they let them run. And so, so you're right. So maybe even a 10% decrease is something that could have a meaningful impact. Yeah. So there's one more, uh, uh, there's actually two more stories that I wanted to talk about, one uh, kind of exciting and one a little bit more funny. Um, and one is that, you know, how we love chewing gum in our family. In fact, we're you big know, gum chewers. We're big, we're big gum chewers. So apparently ancient humans were gun che- gum chewers as well. Uh, and at the University of Copenhagen, they were the first to extract uh, and sequence a full genome, human genome, from a 5,700-year-old piece of chewing gum made from birch pitch. Uh, and it was the first thing that first time that human DNA was extracted from anything other than bones. And what's exciting is that it includes info about microbes that lived hmm. in the mouth and other pathogens. Yeah. And so it has a, a whole bunch of other information that is available to us where, you know, maybe we wouldn't find it in bones. And anyway, so I thought that was kind of a, a, an interesting
2: So 5700 step. years, I guess, by the dental impressions they would have they they could they could attribute that chewing to a homo sapiens?
1: Yes, and uh they they went so far as well, I mean they they sequenced the DNA so they could then match that with uh, you know ancient humans mm. and 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 DNA figure out where it come from. Um well from They've i gone, suppose so. like the saliva?
2: Oh yeah, maybe so, sure.
1: Um yeah. Uh and and yeah, and they mm-hmm. they yeah, they found that that it was a woman that she had brown hair and Um, blue eyes. (laughs) It was pretty amazing that they can get to that kind of detail. And of course, now we know that uh, chewing gum is something that's as old as at least (laughs) civilization as we know it.
2: So ask me about my 2019. Oh, yeah.
1: So (laughs) what about your 2019 in science stories?
2: So I love these questions about your favorite story. But I'm going to caveat it slightly, which is the things that we're most interested in and we th- think are most impactful, that, that people spill a lot of ink and we have a lot of, uh, of discussion around, may ultimately not be that important long-term in science. Mm-hmm. Because I can still remember in 1997 when Dolly the sheep was cloned. Mm-hmm. I went to the library. It was a big deal. I still own a copy of Time Magazine mm-hmm. with Dolly on the front, the sheep. Because at the time, it seemed like, holy guacamole, we have the first clone mammal. Mm -hmm. Like, this is going to harbor in a Mm -hmm. whole new era of cloning. And Mm -hmm. who knows? It's going to be- Bringing back the woolly mammoth. Who knows? Yeah. (laughs) And we're, you know, 20 years later, and we have other better techniques. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, induced pluripotent stem cells versus trying to basically do a chromosomal transfer into kind of a- you know, a a recipient cell. Mm -hmm. So I want to say that because the things that I'm interested in in 2019 science stories, we could look back in 10 years and say, boy, we thought that was a big Mm -hmm. deal and it turned out to be not such a big deal. And I'm going to say this even doubly so because what I'm going to choose is not my area of expertise. So I truly could be somebody who is simply drinking the Kool-Aid of all the hype and not tr- not being close enough to the science to appreciate whether there are massive holes or, you know, we'll be forever 10 years away, you know, and it never materializes. So I'm talking specifically about the group from Google's achievement of so- so-called quantum supremacy.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. So it
2: was in the fall. You may have heard about it. They kind of had their qubits, you know, do some somewhat l- impractical calculation. But a calculation, nonetheless, that some people would say that this calculation would take a traditional kind of standard solid state computer like the one you're recording on right now, many thousands of years to complete, and yet this quantum computer took it 200 seconds or something like that. (laughs) You know, on such thin ice, I'm about to fall through. (laughs) But we've heard a lot about at least a theory of... Why quantum computing could be so magical because it is a truly, you know, uh, just a new vista of quantum capacity and speed and breadth. And again, I'm I'm a biologist by background, so this is really getting outside my realm of expertise. But I've read enough science fiction, like Ted Chiang's uh, Anxiety is the Dizziness of Freedom, which I know mm-hmm. you love too, because mm-hmm. I think you've mentioned it on the show, which by the way, that's a Kierkegaard quote. I came to later learn, and we can talk about that. But Or even, um, did you read After On? After On by, I think his name is uh, Reed, Um, Robert Reed? Anyways, at at the core of that story, After On has to do with quantum computing too. But the fact that this computer was able to achieve this, you know, extraordinary result where traditional computers could not, that idea is that, google this google group has achieved sort of the quantum supremacy mm-hmm. now why that's also important for sort of the broader is that a lots of groups, as i understand it both academic and industry are racing towards this quantum supremacy because if they achieve it they're thoughts to be this true hockey stick or exponential growth beyond that and so once you got it then you're kind of king of the hill mm-hmm. and it'd be very difficult for other that's kind of you know mm. and so um it seemed it seemed impactful, given enough that people talked about it. But again, in ten years, we could say to ourselves, "Boy, that was a yeah. whole lot of nothing." But yeah. I don't know if you if you had a thought on that. But that to me, for kind of, in twenty nineteen, kind of seemed like an interesting thing, kind of. But we'll see what happens. Well, you know, uh,
1: as you know, I've been spending a lot of time this year thinking about technology and how it's shaping us. Uh, I just came back from D.C. where I shot 24 more lectures for the great courses. They should be out sometime in 2020 uh, on exactly that topic. And so, you know, it reminds me of the Roy Amara quote where we, you know, we underestimate uh, the, the impact of technology in the short term sorry, we overestimate its impact in the short term, we underestimate its impact in the long term. Um, and of course, I'm, I'm butchering that quote to make a point here. But essentially, the idea is that, you know, it's possible that 10 years from now, we'll look back and say, you know, that there, there hasn't been as much of a leap as we thought. And yet, we could be looking at it from a very different society.
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, one of the things that I noted, too, is that you know, you and I—we have. Uh, I'm an early adopter of technology. I think I've already talked mm-hmm. about that in some of our other interviews. I love robotics. I think robotics—you know—how mm-hmm. how can you not love robotics? I mean, well, oh, but we,
1: they killed our ro- our social robot this year, right?
2: Yeah, we own a little Anki Cosmo. Yeah, which works, but he's kind of less less intelligent now. But and, and and not only that, but Jibo, you yeah. know, which was part of the uh-huh. MIT Media Lab, which had a really interesting kind of form function and kind of user interface you know both of those companies went out of business yeah. in 2019 so it wasn't a great year for these kind of well I did emotional yeah emotional kind of consumer robotic <laughs> doesn't
1: companies. surprise me I did interact with Jibo at, at uh, tested.com's headquarters and I have to say I was was, was not really that impressed <laughs>
2: But you realize it's like you have to have. It's like the App Store and Apple probably wasn't that impressive. The first no, but year Vector, either.
1: I felt like the social world that we have, we you know, is called Vector. I felt oh, yeah. like he I was. I said Cosmo
2: was the was the first generation. Yeah, well, the we had Vector. Yeah.
1: I thought he was he he was more fun. I think yeah. than Gibo more interesting anyway. He made but... some
2: very. They made some very distinct design choices with him. Yeah. Um. But but the point is that both of those companies went out of business and. You know, I, I love going, there's a place in San Francisco called Musée Mechanique, which has mm-hmm. all these automatons and, mm-hmm. and like, mechanical coin-operated little entertainment machines from literally, some of them go back to the, the turn of the, you know, not, turn of the 20th century, so late 19th century. They look unbelievably primitive to us mm-hmm. today. They're still fun. They kind mm-hmm. of jingle and move. Well, wait,
1: but didn't, didn't, isn't this the year that Boston Dynamics released Spot?
2: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know if it's. I, I thought I have to look it up. They I thought it was gonna go on sale yeah, like to soon, the public. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You can buy spots, spot. which
1: is this this robotic dog. I it was gonna for be like ten thousand dollars. So I don't yeah. know where I'd
2: get ten thousand dollars for this spot, but look, you won't poop in the you won't poop in the house <laughs> and yeah. uh won't bite anybody Right. unless you tell it to.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, she does not But um yeah, but so the point I wanna make is this, you know, I don't think the dream, the human dreams of these companion robots is going to go away anytime soon. Yeah. You know, and we may look back in 25, 50 years, and we could, I, I might still own that little social robot, you know, yeah. from Anki. Yeah. And it'll may look as primitive as the little museum mechanique, you know, mm-hmm. automatons. Mm-hmm. And yet, company failed, but it's one small step in sort of a, a, a long path. Mm-hmm. To these these things. And so pets.com
1: so was, failed too. And here we have Amazon where you can buy. All no, your no, no,
2: no. There was a company called Chewy.com, <laughs> which literally was the same business model as uh-huh. pets.com. And Walmart bought it for a huge amount of yeah. money. Well, there you go. I mean, Mark Andreessen talks a lot about how a lot of these kind of web, I don't even what what, is it 3.0 now? I don't yeah. even know. But the point is, is some of them simply adopted some of the, the, the business plans of web 1.0. Uh And with enough enabling technologies we have today with more rapid shipping, Mm -hmm. kind of supply chains and delivery, last mile delivery, has enabled some of those same business models to succeed the second time around. Well,
1: even just people's, you know, willingness now to part with their money online, you know, it's completely different. Oh
2: my gosh, of course. If you have a... A phone and a Wi-Fi connection, you can do a ton of shopping, which is which is dangerous. But yeah.
1: So one uh, one last story that I thought was kind of fun. Uh, you know, one of our favorite games with our uh, one year old child is hide and seek. You know, it's like it's like one of the of probably the first game that she ever really learned and and she delights it. you know, like we run after her and she just does this like, you know, infectious laugh. Giggles
2: giggles giggles as she hides. And yeah. So adorable. So
1: some researchers in Germany wondered just how innate the uh the the game is. And so they uh kind of spent a bunch of weeks playing with rats. Uh and what they did is they set up this kind of room where there were all these cardboard boxes and they taught the rats To play hide and seek, essentially without food rewards, because they wanted to see whether the rats would do it just for the sake of, you know, the social joy. So it was intrinsically motivating. It was intrinsically motivating, and and the rats learned very quickly. What the game was, and the rats also uh, then were were taught like there was one one condition under which they were it, <laughs> and one condition in which they were hiding, and they learned they figured out those differences really fast, and they behave very differently depending on whether or not they were it, and they even show there they, you can watch these videos uh, of of these rats playing hide and seek with these researchers. Um, and they do really look like they emit these like little squeals of joy, and they look like they're really excited when they find when they're it, and they find the the uh, the hiding human, or v- vice versa when they are uh, when they are hidden or they when, when they are hiding, and and then the the human finds them. Is published in Science. Um, first author is Annika Reinhold, and it's just it's just really really fun to watch. Um, I'll just want to quote right from the abstract. Uh, So when hiding, rats vocalized infrequently, and they preferred opaque over transparent hiding enclosures, very smart, a preference not observed during seeking. Um, And when they recorded from their brain, they found that the prefrontal cortex was very active, uh, and that it varied with game events and trial types, like hide versus seek. Uh, and so it's, it's the idea that these rats were actually strategizing uh, and using different parts of their prefrontal cortex when they had different goals in mind, which is, I think, really kind of exciting.
2: Hmm. Wow, that's fascinating. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, you know, um, you would think that there's no necessarily good reason why a rat would want to do that yeah but they are social creatures
1: they are very social
2: and and they're very smart they're yeah. very
1: intelligent so so here they are do a lot of caching and,
2: behavior and stuff yeah well that may be a 2020 Ig Nobel award winner because that <laughs> one seems i haven't it got published in science so that's yeah quite a feat i did not read it i'm very curious you should, you um, should read it because i'm i i um that's that's amazing it
1: seems silly but i love these animal behavior uh studies that you know where no animals are presumably harmed in the findings and yet uh something really interesting is is learned So that's it for another episode. That's it for 2019. Join us in 2020. Our next episode is featuring uh, Ramesh Srinivasan, who's going to talk to us about the future of technology. It was a really fun interview to record, so I can't wait to share it with all of you. Thanks for listening. If you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Shang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Rahala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stephen Meyer Awald, and Charles Blyle. We could not do the show without you. So thank you for consistently supporting us. Thank you for including us in your 2019. And we hope to join you in 2020. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And my co-host today is... Adam Bristol. And you can just find him
2: I'm not around. on any social media. <laughs> I'm on LinkedIn.
1: All right. See you next year.